All right, we're ready to get started on a new um, a new section and a new study topic. We're going to be going through the book of Leviticus together. Um, Sherry Wright, Elizabeth Straczynski, I almost said the wrong last name, and myself, Summer Malden. So anyway, um, I want to encourage anyone who might be listening um, to this. Ladies, if you would like to join us on any of these, we would love that. Um, in future um, recordings, we'll be going through the chapter breakdowns, but today we're going to be looking at Leviticus as a whole. Um, and I did want to just say before we jumped in, sort of the preface for this was so many times <clears throat> I hear comments, you know, when we're going through our Bible readings or um, just trying to do more scripture reading in general, and we hit Leviticus, um, there are so many comments about how laborious it is and how difficult it is to get through. Uh, maybe repetitive um, is used in so many laws, um, almost in a, in a way that is either one dismissive or two um, I think not seeing the beauty um, that God has delivered to us through his law. So um, I wanted to walk through this um, to hope, hopefully whet our appetite for going in and digging in on our own and uh, really appreciating what God has given us through the book of Leviticus. Um, so I've asked Sherry to get us started um, today with um, the theme of Leviticus being tied to um, other places in the Bible because I think some of us might be surprised how interwoven it is throughout all of Scripture. So, Sherry, if you'll get us started. Okay, so I wanted to start by just reading a little excerpt from this book that I like to, to refer to called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament by uh, David Dorsey. And um, just the first paragraph that he has introducing this section of Scripture um, I thought was really interesting, um, and I, instead of trying to paraphrase it, I thought I'd just read it. Um, uh, it says, The account of the treaty between God and Israel at Mount Sinai is one of the most intriguing stories in the Bible. It forms the second major unit of the book of the law. The author took 68 chapters to prepare the audience for this treaty. He now takes nearly as much space, about 59 chapters, to present the agreement. The new unit extends from Exodus 19.3, when Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, to Numbers 10.10, when the nation departs. The unit is tied together by many factors, including its single topic, the Sinai Treaty, its genre, primarily legal and procedural regulations, and the singularity of its time and place. The events of the unit take place at one, take place, at one place, Mount Sinai, during one year. Uh, the structure in this, of this unit is well planned. The stipulations of the treaty are grouped according to topic. Most of the groups are framed by narrative. Include, uh, excuse me. Most of the groups are framed by narrative interludes, generally episodes involving displays of Yahweh's glory, or stories of Israel's disobedience. The entire unit comprises seven larger units. Okay, so. Um, Basically, from uh, Exodus 19.2 to um, Joshua 24 is um, the history and the reality of the treaty. 
So you have the history, historical intro to the treaty, which is Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 19-2. Then you have the actual treaty, which starts in Exodus 19-3 uh, with the Ten Commandments and goes through to Numbers 10-10. And then you have the historical conclusion to the treaty, which starts in Numbers 10-11 and goes to the end of the book of Joshua. Um, and so... If you think of it that way, if you think of it as, um, as uh, sort of one big chiastic structure, then, and there's other structures uh, woven into it, but that, so at the pinnacle of the, of the, the Torah is the, the, the very pinnacle of it is God entering the tabernacle mm -hmm. and dwelling with his people. And everything else sort of flows out from that. If there's a build up to it and then there's a then there's a drawdown uh, towards the end that mimics the other sections building up to it. And that's why you see so many things in the book of Leviticus and early part of Numbers that seems like something you heard before. Right. Or seems like a situation that is sort of vaguely familiar mm -hmm. from before. And that's and that's why that is. Um, <clears throat> uh, following the assembling of the tabernacle, so you have the, the, the in uh, early Exodus, it, you have the building of the tabernacle. And then uh, or in, in not early Exodus, but early in this section, starting with Exodus 19. You have the building of the tabernacle. Um, you have, um, uh, and then after God enters the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, which is the end of the book of Exodus, um, that's sort of the climax. And then directly after that, you have, so you have the building of the tabernacle, what the tabernacle looks like, what the importance of the tabernacle is. And then right after that, you have the book of Leviticus, which is going to describe what goes on inside the tabernacle. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we have this tabernacle. God lives there. What else? Yeah. Okay, well, these are the things that you're going to be doing with regard to the tabernacle. Um, um, and I, I mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. Leviticus is the largest volume of words directly from God in the entire Bible. Um, if the Torah is a chiasm, then God entering the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34 through 38 is at the center, and Leviticus follows immediately after that. And so you're going to see some parallels between what happens in Leviticus and what happened at the end of Exodus. Um, uh, with regard to the building of the tabernacle, with regard to the, the, uh, the sacrifices, um, sort of pairing up, and with um, the narratives that, that, there's not very many narratives, but the narratives that are there are sort of like punctuation marks. Okay, mm -hmm. this happened. Now this other thing is gonna, about to happen. Okay, all these things happen, and then this happened. Okay, well, that's kind of like what happened back here. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, the narrative framework for the Ten Commandments and the holiness regulations, and the holiness regulations. So you have the, the Ten Commandments, the narrative um, framework for the Ten Commandments, and then the holiness regulations, which 
is towards the end uh, of the structure, they match. Mm -hmm. So the emphasis on holiness foreshadows the holiness laws. The emphasis on, on um, what happens surrounding Moses going up to get the law and how they're not allowed to, to, you know, they have to be holy to approach God. They're not allowed to come close to the mountain. You know, um, uh, all the regulations um, uh, that, that they have surrounding that um, is mimicked by the holiness laws that are going to go into effect. Um, uh, so it focuses on the holiness of God, the people, the tabernacle, and the priests. Um, uh, nearly all of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the holiness unit in some way. It's like, this is the commandment, this is how you implement it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, another clear link between the opening and closing units um, is the narrative introducing the Ten Commandments is mirrored by the concluding narrative, the holiness laws, creating a framework for the entire corpus. Arriving at Sinai, leaving Sinai. Okay? Um, there are dates provided in both. There are not dates for anything else in between, but there are dates for those. Um, God's glory on Sinai in the form of a cloud and smoke and his glory in the tabernacle in the form of cloud and smoke. And at the end, the cloud and the smoke move on and they fall. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's heralded by the sound of something that sounds like trumpets. And then at the end, they're instructed to make trumpets to signal when they're going to be moving and what they're going to be doing. Um, the structural positioning of the two sin stories, Aaron with the calf in Exodus and Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, um, are put there because they're part of the structure. Okay, so Aaron's sin with the golden calf immediately follows God's instructions for the priest's clothing and ordination. Nadab and Abihu's sin with the unholy fire mm -hmm. immediately follows the ceremony in which the priests are clothed and ordained. Right. So, um, uh, the, it's, it's, it's blatant. Um, it's a blatant structural strategy that underscores the point that Israel's system of worship is not the invention of the priests, like mm -hmm. what the pagan religions were about. It's given directly by God. God gives this as, this is how I want my priests to be. And then immediately there's a sin story about how, well, they're not really exactly like God. Um, um, so okay. it's, me, it's given directly from, from Yahweh. The, 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 the law is given directly from Yahweh. It's not, the priest didn't make it up. Okay, let me let me ask this, interject this question because uh, this is a, this is not a gotcha question, mm -hmm. um, but a genuine one. Mm -hmm. uh, in other, or are you aware of in other religious texts of those kind? Because I, there are other things like that that stand out to me as the Bible, the Bible being a unique, um, you know. It, a unique piece of literature on its own, mm -hmm. but then more so than that, what you're bringing out, these um, 
highlights mm-hmm. of this is this this should point you to this is from God, not from man, not from these people. Yeah. Right. Um. So I'm just wondering, and I'm and I'm asking honestly, do do either of y'all are y'all aware of any other? I mean, I'm gonna. I don't mean to be ugly, but I'm gonna throw the Book of Mormon out because mm-hmm. I've read through that and mm-hmm. it's it's frustrating. But mm-hmm. any other religious texts that you know of that that's built in that are Nothing you aware, I'm aware of? Okay, Nothing I just think I'm that's something of. that's yeah. something later I want to go in and research for people mm-hmm. who say, look, everybody needs a story mm-hmm. and want to reduce this to it's just another story, right, of another flavor. Okay, yes. sorry, I, don't, I know you've got a lot right. more to go, but okay. I just <clears throat> that stood out to me. Thank you for bringing that out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Good thoughts. Um, the narrative framework for the Ten Commandments. And the holiness regulations are also matching. So the emphasis on holiness foreshadows the holiness laws. The emphasis on holiness in the Ten Commandments foreshadows what the laws are going to be about at the end. Um, The laws which focus on the holiness of God, the people, the tabernacle, and the priests. So the overall layout has seven sections arranged in order of increasing holiness. Uh, Beginning with the laws of the people... So Ten Commandments, and proceeding to matters of increasing holiness, the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Now the tabernacle was sort of at the pinnacle of holiness, but it was made by just lay people. They yeah. they built it. Right. Okay. Then you have so you have the 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 um, the tabernacle, the sacrifices which are more holy, um, the purity laws, and the holiness laws. Um, so. It sort of mimics, uh, it suggests God's um, raising his people from a common position mm-hmm. to one of holiness and dignity. Um, and it sort of brings them even closer to him. That, that, that's, that, that's his wish for them. Um, an emphasis on kindness to the poor and disadvantaged is a theme. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's also conspicuous throughout all the laws and regulations. This, you know, if a poor person is this way, then this is how you're supposed to treat them. A stranger, the poor person, the disadvantaged person, the widow, you know. Um, <clears throat> so that's really conspicuous. The people that Yahweh freed from slavery and oppression are to be kind to people who are like what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so along with the holiness, this is the way they can aspire to be truly made in God's image. So the, their holiness plus their mercy um, is God's way of trying to bring them closer to him mm-hmm. and make them more like he is, yeah. which is what we're supposed to be striving for. Um, the application of broader scripture is like, I, you can't I, you can't get your your mind around all of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so much. Um, read Hebrews chapter eight through ten. Um, it's obvious that he's talking, mm-hmm. pulling things out of the book of Leviticus that the Hebrews, who are his audience, would know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and making the parallels to the New Covenant. Um, uh, Leviticus is full of 
references to sprinkling with blood and washing with pure water. Mm-hmm. And that's brought out in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, uh, if you read one of my favorite passages, uh, in probably my favorite passage in Leviticus, is chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, which is just a reference to what you're supposed to do with the leprous individual that is clean, that, you know, where the leprosy has left them and and what they would do for that. I think that, um, I think that leprosy represents, not perfectly, not not, not all comparisons, most comparisons are not perfect, um, but it represents sin. Mm -hmm. Leprosy represents sin uh, in the Bible. And so, what you do about that um, and what it causes, what it causes plus what you do about that and how you redeem from it is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Yes. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an obvious reference to baptism and what baptism does for the sinner. Um, <clears throat> think about references to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's got to be like throughout the book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Um, Colossians 2.16 and 17, the law is a shadow, but the substance is Christ. Um, uh, Ephesians 5.26, he talks about the washing of water with the word. Um, and then in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he's talking about the washing of regeneration. So that's that's and, and there's all kinds of washings in Leviticus. There's all kinds of washings with water. There's all kinds of things that you do with blood, and those are all uh, those are all shadows of of the new covenant. And so um, I think we do well to pay really close attention to those to those things and what what the washing with water does and what um, the sprinkling with blood does and um so those are good things. i appreciate you uh setting up our structure there mm-hmm. um and for anyone who you know in those first 10 minutes as sherry is kind of deep diving into the the structures and um and the parallels and all of that um if if in any of that you felt like i just I, i'm not there and i don't you know grasp all of that that is okay but I do think it's worth walking through from the perspective of here is another reaffirming to me faith building thing to see even if I I mean much like looking out at the vast universe and knowing there is order to that on on a level that is not even is not comprehensible to me um, when Sherry, when you're walking through some of that, there's so much I appreciate and I do grasp, but it also gives me that feeling of there is there are so many more levels to this, mm-hmm. so many more layers that are intricately intricately woven that I I haven't even begun to appreciate, um, and that is so encouraging to me mm-hmm. to see um, just so much more. Um, so much more depth there than I'm even aware of yet, but I'm excited to start understanding a little bit more as we go. Um, and also, 
as you were talking about in the different um, applications um, about holiness and the people um, being a holy people and what God is trying to do, um, that is what I'm wanting to walk through um, as an overview of Leviticus. And the way that I've structured this is to go through and just pull out some sort of anchor places um, for us to look through, for us to notice these theme, this theme of holiness. And I want to start off by saying um, that before we look at each of these examples, there's two parts that I would like for us to be considering as we think through this. One is holiness as separateness. Um, set aside and we've heard this example so many times but you know you think about uh, different different clothing that we wear for different purposes and I think in particular about shoes you know what I'm going to go out into the chicken coop um, to you know clean up out there is going to be different than what I wear into the worship service they're two different um, things set apart for those works well mm -hmm. That's uh, the message that uh, I see <laughs> God giving us through the book of Leviticus, and I think is a lot of the reason that it's thought that the Jewish children start with the book of Leviticus is because from the very first, you have that message being sent to them of you are set apart and not just to be set apart unto the Lord mm -hmm. um, and for his purpose. So there's that's the one, one side of it. The second side, and... Um, this is something that I, I haven't considered until recently, but I see it, you know, now that it's, now that, I, you know, how that is, you see something new and then you see it everywhere. But I see it throughout Leviticus as well, is holiness being that you are, God is, as you were saying, you're, he's taking you from being common mm -hmm. to being whole, complete, like him. Um, and as far as I'm aware, the only thing that is totally complete and perfect would be God. Um, so it, there is that, that sense of holiness in which we are a completed creation at that point, And that's where God is trying to bring us to. Um, but there is a lot of work involved in that. So, okay, chapters 1 through 5, um, we have got, um, we've got laws of... Uh, a variety of different um, offerings and in all of those chapters one through five the theme that is standing out to me is God requiring the people to bring their best and then the phrase that is used over and over is before the Lord okay so everything that they are doing all their aspects of life whether it is in regards to their offerings uh, concerning burnt offerings, grain offerings, no matter what the offering is, um, whatever that uh, pertains to, that is being brought before God. Mm -hmm. um, and and nothing is um, nothing is off limits. And that's what that's again what I'm seeing throughout Leviticus is he is requiring all of your personhood to be brought to him um, you know so many times we we talk about you know the first fruits and those kinds of things being offered up and really I think you know we can easily gloss over that what that means but what God has required from the start is give me everything and I will take care of you 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I think is so encouraging to see throughout Leviticus is really understanding what God is require, <clears throat> requiring of his people because that does not just magically change in the New Testament when we flip over. He still requires everything. I mean, and we talk so much about, you know, the work is done. God, Christ has, has given up his life for us in a way that, that makes it sound like we don't, owe him everything anymore mm-hmm. and when it's the, it's just the opposite he gave the highest price he could give he requires we give our highest price mm-hmm. which you know is not it's not a fair trade but that's that's the requirement if we are going to be children of his okay so chapter 6 uh, and verse verses 27 through 30 is uh One of the anchor points I want to stop on for just a moment. It says here, Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel that shall be scoured and rinsed in water, every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy." But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. It's The focus here is on the holy place being set apart for its appropriate use. And it says anything that is not appropriate, that is not holy, does not have a place here. And it is it is not to be brought into the holy place. Um, it must be clean. Um, it may, must be sanctified if it's going to be in um, in the holy place. And we're going to look some more um, at some other places where, as you know, here it specifies if there's blood splashed, it's it's to be cleaned up. Now there is another place of the tabernacle where there's going to be blood everywhere, and that mm-hmm. is not the the instruction is not oh make sure you clean it up right away. It's not the holy place, but here that it's specified it's to be cleaned up and this is to remain a holy place. Um, okay, so uh, chapter 7, verses 19 through 21, and this goes uh, along with some of the verses that we just read. It says, Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten, it shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the lord's peace offering while an uncleanness is on him that person shall be gut, cut off from his people and if anyone touches an unclean thing whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the lord's peace offerings that person i shall cut off from his people so again it's that reiteration if when you are coming before god you there is a requirement that you have the examination of cleanness or uncleanness and as uh, sherry was pointing out or uh, just a few minutes ago with the leprosy there's the connection here with cleanness and uncleanness of um, the unclean being the sin mm-hmm. um, and what we're what we're to do um, with that before we come into the presence of god um as, and, and there are so many New Testament 
connections here, and I'm sure um, we're all, you know, thinking of those, and I'm sure anyone who's listening is is as well. But you know, when we consider coming into worship in God's presence, is it not the same thought process that we see here? Is our hearts must be clean if we're going to be acceptable and give acceptable worship to God. Um, okay, which and I and I would just add to that because so many times I think we jump to. I'm so glad we don't have to worry about that physical stuff anymore. It is much harder to clean our hearts than it is to clean our clothes. Um, okay, chapter ten, verses one through three, and this is again uh, Sherry brought this out. Nadab and Abihu. And uh, I appreciated, because I think this is one of the difficulties in going through Leviticus, is it's not narrative punctuated by uh, laws, but it's the opposite. And I think that is, it, it can make for a more difficult reason uh, reading because narrative makes more sense to us. You know, we, we think in terms of what happened before, what happened next, what happened after. Mm-hmm. Um, but appreciate I want us to appreciate what Sherry said about why is it written in this way you know there is a reason that this narrative was chosen and it's there's a reason that it was chosen to be placed where it was placed mm-hmm. um, so let's look at verses uh, one through three of Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each shook his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Um. God is going, he must be glorified, and the way in which he is glorified, as these verses indicate, is through obedience. Um, Anything else is acting as mere men, as common men, as Sherry had uh, pointed out before, and that is is just not acceptable before God. Um, And just the notion that we, you know, that we glorify God by being thankful well okay given but really god i don't see what i see, the biblical pattern that i see is when god is specifically said that he is glorified it's because his creation has done what it was created to do and here nadab and abihu did not do what they were created to do um, they went and decided they had a, uh, a different idea that would work just as well, and they were, they were incorrect. So, um, so I do want, again, these, I know we all know this, and I don't mean to be the dead horse, but there's so many of these thoughts that today I feel like, um, you know, we've got these great ideas of, you know, how we can do things, and Leviticus is a wonderful way to point back to God's character and what he wants our character to be um okay so um chapter 19 oh let me let me pause just to mention this we won't read the verses because i want to make sure we have enough time for elizabeth um to share her thoughts as well but uh 11 through 15 we've got uh 
a lot of instruction on dealing with uncleanness, what to do about that. Um, again, um, I don't want that, that should not be reduced to, well, it's just, um, you know, sanitary stuff. There is that element of it, but again, remember this is a shadow and it's supposed to bring us to the substance of how to deal with our uncleanness spiritually. Um, chapter 16 then was very interesting to me right after dealing with uncleanness. What do we have but atonement? Um, and just, I mean, so beautiful. Again, I don't, I don't know the depth that Sherry does of the structure, but even I can see, hey, God specifically dealt with a while for a while, unclean, unclean, unclean. Now, what do we do about it? Atonement. Okay. So chapter 19, um, this, I, I, this is, I, I just love this chapter because I think this gets at the heart of all of scripture. Um, okay. So one through four says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any God of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. Okay. So, the only reason we are to be holy is because our Creator is. That's it. I mean, and I know that sounds overly simplistic, but that is the baseline. Everything comes down to why would we not just act like other beasts and animals? Because our Creator is holy, and that's what we are called to be. Mm -hmm. And any, and I, Please, please, please do not, uh, Leviticus, Genesis, any book of the Bible, but especially this right here where God is saying this is the essence of who you are. Um, there is so much appreciation that I have for God caring about mere dust, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we ought to be humbled by that and walk worthy. Okay. Um, I'm just going to go through these very quickly so that Elizabeth has enough time and I won't um, be reading through all of them, but just to reference them. So chapter 20 and verse 26, he says, you are a separate people. Again, the same, the same thing of here is your calling. Here is your purpose. Um, and chapter 21, verses 16 through 23, there are to be no blemishes. Um, God will sanctify. I do have to pause here for just a minute to mention this, and I won't read through, but please, please take the time to read through this because this is one of the most offensive places um, in Leviticus to modern ears. Um, it's going through the the hunchback, the um, deformed, the you know all the things that uh, that have blemishes, so to speak. They are not to be specifically talking about the Levites. They are not to be serving because they are not holy. Okay. Now that I say that's very offensive because, you know, everybody can be anything right now. And I get that, but there is a sense. And, and I think God wants to make this very clear in which any handicaps, any disabilities, any uh, shortcomings that we have, I do think he is making a point that was not how I intended 
this to be. Mm-hmm. Those are brought in because of sin. Now, it's not necessarily the sin of the person or their parents, but in general, because sin has entered the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and just as a in, in a personal note, I think about things like this with um, my son Owen, and I think of you know other people that I know personally that are a joy, and that it, you know there's so much wonderful things that could be said about those people, mm-hmm. but they but he was not whole. He was not complete. He was not um, healthy. You know mm-hmm. in and what God longs for is for us to be whole and healthy and perfect. Mm-hmm. And that is his his purpose. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I, I wanted to mention that just because mm-hmm. that, that one is picked up a lot by people saying this is a, a God of, of hatred and, and whatever. Um, but as Sherry pointed out, and I don't have time to go through all of them, how many times does God take care of the slave the uh, the the women that are widows, you know, without any you know means for themselves, you know, all the people who don't have someone to take mm-hmm. care of them, God makes incredible provisions for them, mm-hmm. um, and so anyway, just wanted to point that out as well. Um, lastly, verses or chapters twenty three through twenty five, we've got the feast, and what are the purpose of feast? But to remember that we are wholly set apart to the Lord. Um, And then last chapter 27, um, verses 31 through 33, we've got the phrase there, holy to the Lord. So there is a purpose for our holiness. So I hope I haven't taken up too much time, Elizabeth, but um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the book of Leviticus. Yeah, so before I jump in to my thoughts, I just kind of wanted to share with y'all how I prepared for this, mm-hmm. um, because I feel like I I really got this, even though I've never really, like, dived into Leviticus really deep. So, um, are y'all familiar with the Bible Project? Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. Is that the one where they've... Oh, never mind. You go ahead and explain. Yeah. So, one of the big things they do is they'll do, like, breakdowns of every book of the Bible, Mm -hmm. and they'll kind of illustrate it out with the main ideas. Um, It includes the literary structure in there, which I thought was really cool. So, um, their Leviticus one is really good, and it really emphasizes, um, since Sherry didn't say it, it's got a key has some (laughs) within the book of Leviticus that Uh they pull out. Mm -hmm. Um, And how the, like the ultimate question that they pulled out is like, how does an unholy people live with a holy God? And that's exactly what Summer's point was that God has called these people to be holy. Um, And so that brings me around to my point, which is these sacrifices, the ritual purity, everything like that is what brings the people into a right relationship with God makes them holy before the Lord. Um, So I kind of wanted to preface all this with everything that God says about sin up until this point, just our general knowledge of sin, if you will. Um, And as early as Genesis, God establishes this standard that if you sin, that separates you from me. And um, later on in Romans, phrases it really well, you know, the wages of sin is death. And so I wanted to start there because that's why the law is so powerful. In all of these sacrifices, something is dying. Mm -hmm. And God's justice demands that the person who commits the sin would die. 
but because of his grace, because of his love, he is allowing an animal to be offered in the place of the person who has offended the law. Um, and something that the video that I watched pointed out that I had never really thought of was, okay, yeah, animal sacrifice seems terribly barbaric to us. Like, why would you kill an animal? Um, besides the fact that it's better for an animal to die than for a, for a human to die, just kind of, um, this separates God out from the deities at the time. Because, you know, Sherry, you were talking about, or no, it was mm. somewhere talking about how the law is handed down from these priests and they just kind of make up stuff. And it's like, oh yes, we think this pagan deity would like this, but it's super arbitrary. You can't really control what happens. You have no idea if you are pleasing this false god or not. But why the sacrifices and the law are so important is because you know what your standing is before God at any given time. Like if you come into contact mm -hmm. with the things that are unclean, you are not fit to come before God. If you've transgressed the law and haven't um, made the proper sacrifices, you are not fit to come before God. Um, and so the Israelites would know, okay, I've done this thing. I should not come before the Lord because at that time they are unholy, they are unclean. Um, which makes Jehovah different from the other gods at the time because it is very clear, very distinct. Do these things and you will be a clean people to come before me. So, in the first, um, like, seven chapters of Leviticus, that's where it breaks down the individual kinds of sacrifices. And the breakdowns for these I got from the Waldron study material. I forget what it's called, but we've talked about this before. Um, which I think does a really good job breaking down what the sacrifice is, when you're expected to make that sacrifice, what it requires what the priests get out of it, and then the purpose. Like, what is this trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And then in the Bible Project video, they kind of broadly separate these into sacrifices that are just thanking God. You haven't necessarily done anything wrong. You are just giving something up, offering that to God, mm -hmm. um, just because of how much he had blessed them at the time. And, well, how much he blessed us in general, but... Um, the other broad category of sacrifices would be like atoning for sin, apologizing, confessing to God for transgressing the law that he's given. So the first one is the burnt offering. And I really like the point that Brother Waldron made about this represents complete devotion to God because the animal that's being sacrificed is entirely consumed. Um, and these are offered daily for just the people in general um, and individuals can go and make these sacrifices and I thought it was really interesting because the term that's used usually also refers to like going up so um, we talk about like the it being a pleasing aroma to the Lord it's going up to the Lord and I don't know if this is necessarily the intention but it kind of reminded me of prayer that we should very daily be offering up our prayers to God to show our complete devotion and reliance on him. Um, I forgot to mention at the start, I'm just going to kind of tie in applications to us that I saw as I go through. Um, so that's the burn offering. 
Then the next one that they talk about is like the meal offering or the grain offering. It's rendered a little bit differently, but this is one of those um, offerings that you haven't necessarily done anything wrong. You are bringing things before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it has very, very specific requirements about what you can and cannot bring. Specifically, it's going to be flour or grain with oil and salt. And that salt point is super important. So you have to salt everything. Um, and the kind of other side of that is you cannot have any yeast or honey in this sacrifice. Um, that's just not acceptable. And something that I've talked about with in some other context, I'm trying to remember, but um, why I think the salt part is really important is like when you're baking, you're not supposed to add the salt and the yeast like together because something about the salt will kill or denature or otherwise harm the yeast. So if you're salting your grain offering and you're making sure there's no yeast in it, you're making this pure, you're making this holy. Um, Especially when you think about like the Passover and especially how Jews today celebrate the Passover, like if anything has touched leaven, it cannot touch Mm -hmm. the things that are holy, or I guess kosher. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, The other thing I noticed about this and um, actually both of the the grain offering and the peace offering is that these provide for the priests. So the priests take a little handful of it and they burn it and then the rest is for them to eat in a very specific manner. Um, unless a priest is offering it, in which case he can't eat of his own sacrifice. That just doesn't track. <laughs> so then the next one that they talk about is the peace offering. And there's like three subcategories of peace offerings. You have one for Thanksgiving, one for when you're making a vow, and one that you're giving up of your free will. And so you, this is another animal sacrifice one. And so you're burning the fat and then some of the meat is given to the priest. And so this is another one that I think that this is like providing for the priest through these Mm -hmm. offerings. Um, and the Thanksgiving offering is given differently than the vows and free will offerings. And we'll talk about that more when we go through like chapter by chapter. Um, something I thought was interesting about this one is you can bring a peace offering whenever you want, but it's also specifically, uh, commanded for the Feast of Pentecost. Um, and I didn't have time to read more into that, but I would like to just discuss it more when we get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next one is one of the the biggest ones, which is the sin offering. Mm -hmm. And this kind of where we get the idea or this kind of concept of satisfying God's demand for justice and removing guilt for sins. So again, you're laying your hands on an animal and it is representing you to be slaughtered like this death that you deserve the animal is taking in your place and something i hadn't really thought about um but i read in one of the commentaries i was going over was that these sacrifices and especially the sin offering was an act of faith because you're killing this animal it's like okay great but you had to have faith and trust that this is removing your sin, that this is covering you, that's making you 
you know, good before the law. Um, and what's really important to emphasize about this is that it's not just a mere ritual. Like, the original intent of the sacrifices was that you would think about what you've done, think about the consequences of your sin, and then not do them anymore because that causes a separation from God. And I think that's kind of part of just the overall story of the Old Testament is these important sacrifices that meant something to these people, that mean something to God, just kind of slip into vain repetition. They're just rituals that you do. And I think that's especially important for us because everything that we bring to God um, through worship, through singing, through prayer, shouldn't be slipping into vain repetitions. So like Summer said earlier, God demands that we give everything to him, and we're not just going to give him some like little half-hearted, you know, whatever, because this is what we do. That we need to be very mindful about the things that we do um, and the worship that we bring to God, because... Like you said, his expectations have, have not changed. He expected them to bring a sacrifice um, to just constantly remind them of these things and to have it actually mean something for their lives. Um, the other thing about the sin offering, and I'll talk about this more if I get to it, mm -hmm. um, is that this was a specific part of the Day of Atonement. Um, that the sin offering was more or less what the Day of Atonement was for, was to make a sin offering for the whole people. I'll circle back around to that in a minute. And then the last um, kind of offering is the trespass offering, which was kind of like a subcategory of sin offerings, but it was for very specific times. So the first, um, the first kind of condition of this is if you were making an offering to God, and you did that improperly, you'd have to make a trespass offering, an additional offering to rectify that. So um, there's always going to be consequences for not coming before God properly. If you're bringing improper sacrifice, you have to sacrifice more. If you're not um, holy, if you're unclean, you get just cast out of the assembly. Or most extreme example with Nadab and Abihu obviously is if you're not coming before God in the way that he has said you need to come before him, that results in death. Um, and then the other kind of condition, uh, or I guess there's two more, never mind. The trespass offering also covers an event where restitution cannot be made. So like, um, I need to read into this more, but if you think like, okay, someone dies, you can't replace a human life, mm -hmm. so trespass offering. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is actually really interesting. It's about like finances. So if you're loaning someone money and you give them like collateral, you hold on to something of theirs before they pay you back, but then you don't give it back when the loan is paid, then that requires a trespass offering because you have wronged your brother in a way that God has said, hey, you gotta treat people right. So those are the um, five main sacrifices, and then 
circling back around to the Day of Atonement, which is uh, chapters 16 and 17. Um, that is one of the biggest events because this is um, the priests making atonement for the whole congregation. Um, and while these sacrifices would be offered continually through the year, this is just a, there's obviously going to be sins that go unnoticed. Either you're not going to realize it, the priest's not going to realize it, and you just kind of need to wipe the slate clean is kind of how I understand it. And this has the really interesting ritual of the scapegoat. So you have the two goats, and one of them you sacrifice, and the other one you lay your hands on and confess the sins of the congregation, and then you send it out into the wilderness. And that's kind of where we get our modern idea of a scapegoat, which is really cool, but just this very physical reminder that sin needs to be as far away from y'all, from the people, um, mm -hmm. to be God's holy people. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of to sum up all the sacrifices, these are necessary for you to become holy because God demands complete holiness. Um, and I think I kind of circled around to all my concluding thoughts mm -hmm. at some point in the middle, mm -hmm. but basically to sum these all up, Sin demands a price, and through God's grace, He has allowed these people and has allowed us not to pay with our lives, but for the with the lives of something else, be it an animal, or for us, the blood of Christ. Um, and all these sacrifices seem very like strange and specific, but what they were really leading to was cultivating like a heart of devotion to God mm -hmm. that you should constantly be thinking about what you're doing um, even more than that something I hadn't thought of before was that even the option to offer a sacrifice instead of you yourself dying for your sin shows God's grace and love mm -hmm. and that should be reflected out to other people so when you have these laws about moral purity it's because God is allowing you um to live through his grace and love. So you should show that same kindness to others. And he demands the same of us today. Um, and then obviously we'll get around to Christ being the perfect sacrifice once for all, which still demands everything we have, um, more so than sacrificing animals and stuff like that. Um, so those were my just kind of general thoughts about the sacrifices. Um, how it's still really important to us today, even though we're not doing those exact things. Um, and I feel like we, uh, you know, are doing our best to, you know, get through each of the, each of us, the materials that we prepared just to get, you know, kind of a glimpse um, of Leviticus and the importance that it serves, or, you know, some of the importance that it serves. There's so much more. I feel like we are just scratching the surface um, <clears throat> but you know, to pack it into an hour. Um, but I do hope, I hope this is wetting the appetite to go through this, um, step by step. And I would encourage any ladies, um, who are interested in, you know, following along with us and studying along with us. If there are specific questions that come up, 
please um, send them. I'm going to volunteer Sherry. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you can message Sherry and, um, and we'll, you know, each as we can, you know, address any of those. And if we don't know, well, then we'll throw Seth under the bus. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do, I would encourage everyone to, um, you know, join in mm-hmm. with us because this, this kind of stuff is not just academic. It's not just, this is cool to know. It, it really is, faith strengthening um the more deeply we dive into the word and see how in how very well interwoven it is um from beginning to end and sherry did you have anything else that you wanted to mention before we closed up okay no no well i appreciate it and i hope you ladies will join in uh to hear us next week and send us any questions or thoughts you may have thanks so much